You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 17th day of December 2012. Welcome to episode 251 of the Corbett Report podcast, Solutions 3D Printing. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one in the audience who, as a young man, looked wistfully upon those well-nigh magical technologies presented to us in the Star Trek The Next Generation fictional universe wistfully, wondering when those technologies would, in fact, become reality. Well, fret not, fellow starry-eyed dreamers, I'm here today to tell you that, in fact, that time is already upon us, and those technologies are already starting to come to pass. No, I'm not talking about the holodeck. I'm talking about the replicator. Talk. Give me a martini straight up with uh, two olives for the vitamins. I might just get to like this place. Okay, so we're not quite at the point where we can literally just replicate ourselves food and drink out of thin air, but uh, how about the cup that I'm drinking my coffee from? Well, that is actually something that could truly be done right now through a 3D printer sitting on my desktop, if I were to have one. And that is something that's really important to get our heads around in today's episode. So let's start cracking the open this new technology, in, which in fact is not new at all. Surprisingly enough, this technology has been around for decades, but it is only now starting to break through into the commercial mainstream and is starting to become more and more a reality that the average person is starting to cotton onto. So what is this technology? What does it do? How does it work? Well, it is called 3D printing, or also known as additive manufacturing. And this being the internet age, of course, all we have to do to find out more about a subject is add .com to the end of something. So additivemanufacturing.com will send you to a site that has news and information related to this 3D printing revolution. And on their handy-dandy About Us section, they have this information. Quote, what is additive manufacturing? Additive manufacturing, AM, is an appropriate name to describe the technologies that build 3D objects by adding layer upon layer of material, whether the material is plastic, metal, concrete, or, one day, human tissue. Common to AM technologies is the use of a computer, 3D modeling software, computer-aided design or CAD, machine equipment, and layering material. Once a CAD sketch is produced, the AM equipment reads in data from the CAD file and lays down or adds successive layers of liquid, powder, sheet material, or other in a layer-upon-layer fashion to fabricate a 3D object. The term AM encompasses many technologies including 3D printing, rapid prototyping, direct digital manufacturing, layered manufacturing, and additive fabrication. AM application is limitless early use of AM in the form of rapid prototyping focused on pre-production visualization models. More recently, AM is being used to fabricate end-use products in aircraft, dental restorations, medical implants, automobiles, and even fashion products. End quote. All right, you can go and continue reading on in that uh, About Us section of additivemanufacturing.com if you so desire. And of course, the link to that article will be in the show notes for today's episode. But that's a little bit dry of a description. Perhaps it would be better to actually listen to someone who's a little bit enthusiastic about this topic. So let's find out more about what this additive manufacturing or 3D printing revolution is really about by turning to Lisa Haruni, who is the co-founder and the CEO of Digital Forming, which is uh, working in the field of additive manufacturing, specifically developing software related to 3D printing. And uh, she gave a talk at the TED Talks conference where she explained a little bit about what this 3D printing technology is really all about. It is actually a reality today that you can download products from the web, product data, I should say, from the web, perhaps tweak it and personalize it to your own preference or your own taste, and have that information 
sent to a desktop machine that will fabricate it for you on the spot. We can actually build for you very rapidly a physical object. And the reason we can do this is through an emerging technology called additive manufacturing or 3D printing. This is a 3D printer. They have been around for almost 30 years now, which is quite amazing to think of, but they're only just starting to filter into the public arena. Um, typically, you would take data, like the data of a pen here, which would be a geometric representation of that product in 3D, and we would pass that data with material into a machine, and a process that would happen in the machine would mean layer by layer that product would be built, and we could take out the physical product um, ready to use, or perhaps to assemble into something else. But if these machines have been around for almost 30 years, why don't we know about them? Because typically they've been uh, too inefficient, inaccessible, not, uh, they've, they've not been fast enough, they've been quite expensive. But today, it is uh, becoming a reality that they are now becoming accessible. Many barriers are breaking down, that means that it's, you guys will soon be able to access one of these machines, if not this minute. Um, and it will change and disrupt the landscape of manufacturing, and most certainly our lives, our businesses, and the lives of our children. So how does it work? It typically reads CAD data, which is uh, product design data created on professional product design programs. And here you can see an engineer, it could be an architect or a professional product designer, create a product in 3D. And this data gets sent to a machine that slices the data into two-dimensional representation of that product all the way through, almost like slicing it like salami. And that data, layer by layer, gets past the machine, starting at the base of the product, and depositing material, layer upon layer, infusing the new layer of material to the old layer in an additive process. And this material that's deposited either starts as a liquid form or a material powder form. And the bonding process can happen by either melting and depositing or depositing and melting. In this case, we can see a laser sintering machine developed by EOS is actually using a laser to fuse the new layer of material to the old layer. And over time, quite rapidly, actually, in a number of hours, we can build a physical product ready to take out of the machine and use. And this is quite an extraordinary idea, but it is reality today. So all of these products that you can see on the screen were made in the same way. They were all 3D printed. And you can see they're ranging from shoes, rings that were made out of stainless steel, phone covers out of plastic, uh, all the way through to spinal implants, for example, that were created out of medical-grade titanium, and engine parts. But what you'll notice about all of these products is they're very, very intricate. The design is quite extraordinary. Because we're taking this data in 3D form, slicing it up before it gets past the machine, we can actually create structures that are more uh, intricate than any other manufacturing technology, or in fact, are impossible to build in any other way. And you can create parts with moving components, hinges, parts within parts. So in some cases, we can abolish totally the need for manual labor. It sounds great. It is great. We can have 3D printers today that build structures like these. Well, this is almost three meters high. And this was built by depositing uh, artificial sandstone, layer upon layer, in layers of about five millimeters to 10 millimeters in thickness, slowly growing this structure. This was created by an architectural firm called Shiro. And you can actually walk into it. And on the other end of the spectrum, this is a microstructure. It's created depositing layers of about four microns. So really, the resolution is quite incredible. The detail that you can get today is quite amazing. So who's using it? Typically, because we can create products very rapidly, uh, it's been used by product designers or anyone who wanted to prototype a product and very quickly create or reiterate a design. And actually, what's quite amazing about this technology as well is that you can create bespoke products en masse. 
there's very little economies of scale, so you can now create one-offs very easily. Architects, for example, who want to create prototypes of buildings. Again, you can see this is a building of the Free University in Berlin, and it was designed by Foster and Partners. Again, not buildable in any other way. Very hard to even create this by hand. Okay. Long story short, this is a technology that allows for the creation and manufacture of products in total, complete working three-dimensional objects out of mere digital design and with no actual manufacturer labor other than the printer itself, which literally just creates the object. It's difficult to even visualize this process, so we'll take a look at that in some more detail in a moment. But first, it's important to understand at least some of the things that this technology is capable of. And since this is additive manufacture rather than subtractive manufacture, so you could think of traditional manufacturing as taking a block of some material and chipping away the parts you don't need so you're left with some form that you actually want, well, with additive manufacturing, you're creating it one layer upon layer upon layer at a time, so you are creating a 3D object from the ground up, literally. And uh, the significance of this is that you can even manufacture products with this that are literally impossible to manufacture in any other way. In fact, you could literally create a ship in a bottle through this 3D printing technology because it would be printing it up one layer at a time. Again, it's difficult to wrap your head around without seeing it, so certainly for the people who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, I would wholeheartedly suggest you take a look at the video because we're going to show some examples of how this technology really works, and it makes a whole lot more sense if you can actually see what's going on. But yes, this is quite a revolutionary technology, and it's important to note this isn't, again, this is not some pie-in-the-sky fantasy of something that's going to happen in some vague nebulous future. It is something that is already being used by major manufacturers for extremely sensitive equipment. And uh, chances are, if you've flown on the new Dreamliner from Boeing or the latest Airbus model, you've already relied on this technology because even parts for jet engines and other very sensitive equipment is already being manufactured through a additive manufacturing process. And for more documentation on that, we could turn, for example, to The Economist, which had an article just a couple of weeks ago, Print Me a Jet Engine, which says, quote, Confirmation as to how seriously some companies are taking additive manufacturing, popularly known as 3D printing, came on November 20th when GE Aviation, part of the world's biggest manufacturing group, bought a privately owned company called Morris Technologies. This is a small precision engineering firm employing 130 people in suburban Cincinnati, Ohio. Morris Technologies has invested heavily in 3D printing equipment and will be printing bits for a new range of jet engines. Morris Technologies uses a number of 3D printing machines, all of which work by using a digital description of an object to build it in physical form layer by layer. Among the 3D printing technologies used by Morris Technologies is laser sintering. This involves spreading a thin layer of metallic powder onto a build platform and then fusing the material with a laser beam. The process is repeated until an object emerges. Laser sintering is capable of producing all kinds of metal parts, including components made from aerospace-grade titanium. One of the attractions of printing parts is that it saves material. Instead of machining components from solid billets of material in which much of it must be cut away, only the material that is needed to shape the part is used. Printed parts can also be made lighter than forged parts, which promises fuel savings. Many manufacturers already use 3D printing to make prototypes of parts, because it is cheaper and more flexible than tooling up to produce just one or two items. But the technology is now good enough for it to be used to make production items, too. End quote. Well, that's at least some of the heavy industry manufacturing ramifications of this, but probably for the majority of the audience out there, that's not necessarily something that you'll directly experience in your day-to-day life. But don't worry, this technology is not, certainly not by a long shot, just for big manufacturing companies. It is increasingly available to individuals who can now choose from a wide variety of commercially available 3D printers, which are capable of literally printing objects for you on your desktop. And this is the type of, well, really sci-fi world that we are increasingly living in. And once again, I think that the only barrier to this technology truly 
leaping over from the sort of counterculture or the, the, the subculture where it's currently in to the mainstream is uh, the, the barrier is not technological and it is not uh, really a price barrier. I think it's really the barrier of people's ability to understand just how revolutionary this technology can potentially be. All right, well, I said we'd get into some examples of how this technology can be used. Let's take one very simple, basic idea and see uh, see the uh, how it follows through the manufacturing process, and that is to create a simple tool, a simple spanner, something that can actually be used. Well, can that actually be created through this 3D printing process? Well, the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. Theoretical physicist David Kaplan has found a company that replicates tools, and pretty much anything else you can imagine, with a 3D copy machine. I'm in Burlington, Massachusetts at the Z Corporation, where they've developed a new technology that's similar to those replicators you see in sci-fi movies. It's called 3D printing. I'm here to find out if they can 3D print my crescent wrench. We're one of the world's leading manufacturers of three-dimensional printers. Everything on the table in front of us has been printed in one of the machines behind us. Printed? Yes. Okay. Most printers will print things in two dimensions. A three-dimensional printer will then take that to the third dimension and make it something you hold in your hand. Okay, I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) And this? That's just an example of the complexity of the things that you can make. This moves. It moves and it was printed all as one piece. This came out of a printer just like this. Came out of a printer just like that. (laughs) What is the material that makes this thing? It's a specially engineered composite material that starts out as a powder, then we add to it a binder material that solidifies those powder particles together. These materials are the company's own secret recipe, a unique concoction not used anywhere else. This is one of our three-dimensional printers. There's a print head inside this machine that ejects specific fluids for coloring different parts. Yeah. But we also have a print head for printing our binder materials to solidify the parts. Oh, my God. The powder is the paper, and this binding stuff is the ink. And then this tray here that it prints on will actually drop into the machine to give it that third dimension. Okay, I would like to see that. Could you reproduce this wrench? Absolutely. It has moving parts here. Not a problem. First thing we need to do is scan it. All right. Go take a look? Yeah. Let's see it. Here we go. The scanner inputs every facet of the wrench into this computer, creating an image that will be sent to the printer. (laughs) Oh, that is cool. How accurately can you measure the shape? The accuracy is within 40 microns. That's like a human hair width. Uh, Actually, a little less. That's incredible. All right, so their wrench was scanned. Here's the wrench that you did. Okay, can you make that ring red? Sure. I want to select it and paint, so now that piece is red. I see. Just that simple. When we're ready, we just go down and hit print. All right, David, printing's done. Let's take a look at your wrench. Okay. Uh, I don't see anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's in there. Just reach into the powder and pull out your wrench. Okay. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah, there's a real wrench right oh there. Oh my god, you printed this. Yeah, it came right out of the powder. That's amazing. So all that's left to do is blow off the rest of that powder. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah. A color 3D printer. I'm freaked out by this. It doesn't make sense. I'm holding this thing that is moving parts and it just came out of a printer. just that easy this changes everything so how strong can this thing get you could get strength yeah. just by infusing this with a little extra resin we could actually use it as a tool absolutely okay let's see if this really works can i really pull it hard go for it just as you would a real wrench okay what do you think wow that's a real tool yeah holy cow we just printed this. That's right. An hour and a half ago, that was nothing but a bunch of powder and binders. There's a box of powder. That's yeah. Right. That is incredible. Now you've got a real tool that you can use for functional tasks. So going into space, you take a printer, and you can just print whatever you want. That's right. Anything from the tools that you need or the actual objects you're working on. And uh, I can keep the tool? Absolutely. We'll okay. Print another one. Okay, good. <laughs> so if you lose your tool in space, you can print out another one. 
I certainly hope that the incredible implications and the revolutionary nature of this technology is beginning to sink in because, quite frankly, I'm not sure how I can articulate just how revolutionary a technology this could potentially be in a lot of different ways. And I'm not necessarily stating that additive manufacturing is going to completely displace all previous forms of manufacturing and, and everything will totally be transformed, but at the very least, with additive manufacturing in addition to traditional forms of manufacturing, I think we have an incredibly game-changing technology that's, again, already here, and it's just a question of its wide-scale adoption, and really a question of the public learning about this technology and what it can do. And certainly there are limitations to what it can do at this present time, and let's not oversell it here. At this point, it's still a, a process that can manufacture goods, generally speaking, in only one type of material. So it's uh, objects that are all just one material, or that can then be assembled afterwards with other materials, etc. But uh, it, it is limited in certain forms and functions, and of course uh, the, the size of objects that can be manufactured at this point are still relatively small, I suppose. Uh, when we when we look at uh, the types of 3D printers that are commercially available at any rate. But, uh, but still, I think we have to, we don't have to use much imagination to see how this type of technology can be extended and refined and improved in the very near future, and in fact already is being worked on. And again, I think the, the incredible implications of this technology should speak for themselves, but let's just take one silly example. That clip posed that whole manufacture process in the context of building tools for use in space or something along those lines. I'm not really even sure why that was important, but it, let's even just take that context. And I'm sure everyone remembers, either directly remembers the drama of Apollo 13 or probably more likely remembers the Ron Howard dramatization of those events and remembers one of the key plot points in the movie is, of course, oh, well, they they, they have to basically jerry-rig some, some equipment that they have to assemble out of sort of spare parts that they have lying around the shuttle and it's a question of how are they going to do this and it's all this dramatic tension well imagine how much less dramatic tension there would be if there was a 3d printer on board that shuttle and literally all they had to do was upload the uh, the design specs for whatever equipment they needed into that sh shuttle's 3d printer and they literally print off the object that they need and slot it into place clearly it wouldn't be quite so uh, dramatic uh, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, uh, actually, never mind. Uh, we'll just print off the part. Uh, that would obviously take care of that dramatic plot point. But again, I, this is the type of incredible game-changing technology that is, again, already available. So the implications for all aspects of the manufacturing process and the, basically the global economy as we know it today, again, should be fairly self-evident. And even, again, just taking the tool example, well, imagine what goes into the creation, the manufacture of a tool in our current paradigm, where we have these large-scale factories that manufacture tools that involve bringing in all sorts of raw materials that then have to be put through specialist processes, through specialized equipment run by people who have been specially trained to run that equipment that again gets manufactured and then it gets boxed up and then it gets sent out and distributed to a wide range of stores that may be halfway around the world from where it was originally manufactured. It will get put in the store and maybe one day you'll be happening to walk by that particular tool and you'll pick it up and say, that's the one I want. Now, imagine all of the inefficiencies in that process compared to a process where you sit at your home in your pajamas and you download the specs for whatever tool you need and you print it off on your desktop. And in a few hours, you're literally holding that precise tool that you precisely need in your hand. Now, that is a revolutionary technology. And again, I don't think we have to spell it out too deeply exactly why that is so important and why it is so revolutionary. But having said all of that, well, how could anyone say anything bad about 3D printing? It's an amazing and truly liberating technology that has the power to take the manufacturing process as we've known it and condense it down into something that we can use in our own homes to create individualized products on demand. What could possibly be wrong with this process? Well, like with any other great idea, leave it to something like the BBC to find a problem with it. So, what is 3D printing? It starts with a digital design or scan 
that's then fed into the printer. The process is also called additive manufacturing because it involves building up objects layer by layer rather than pressing them out. Right now, a limited range of materials can be used, mainly plastics and resins, but the first metal printers are now emerging. However, it's a big fall in prices that's driving take-up. In 2002, even a budget 3D printer might have cost £20,000. Today, you can get a desktop device for under 1000 And the range of objects that the technology can deliver keeps expanding. In the medical world, it's being used in dental work. And this is a replacement jawbone built out of titanium powder. The fashion industry is experimenting. Here's a 3D printed bikini. This flute came out of a printer, though it needs some fine tuning. And at Loughborough University, they're even printing concrete and exploring how the construction industry might be transformed. But for some, this is a revolution that starts at home. The great drive for me is to improve the quality of home 3D printing. In his living room in south-east London, Paul Candler devotes much of his time to his passion for 3D printing. He's proud that he's adapted his machine to print in layers of just 20 microns. That's a 50th of a millimetre thick. I think it will become a commonplace item. If you look back, it wasn't um, that, that long ago that people thought that, uh, that you wouldn't have a computer in every single home. And you certainly wouldn't have uh, a nice colour printer in every home. And now, you know, every home has at least one printer. And when you get to the stage where you literally just have to load a file, press a button, that will be the stage where they will become mainstream. Paul is part of an online movement which uploads and shares designs for other 3D printer hobbyists to download. But therein lies a looming problem. Any revolutionary new technology provides both opportunities and threats. Just ask the music industry. As 3D printing becomes more commonplace, the value of the digital designs fed into the printers should rise, but so will the threat of piracy. Once your designs have escaped onto the internet, there's nothing to stop anyone anywhere from printing out your products without your permission. So one industry should benefit from the rise of 3D printing, and that's the patent lawyers. And so we enter the realm of the intellectual property debate. Oh no, won't someone think of the poor helpless corporations whose intellectual property rights are going to suffer because of this new technology? Yes, well, how long did we really expect it would take before that monstrous argument reared its ugly head? Well, not very long, and who else to bring it to us than the BBC? But unfortunately, of course, this is a debate that is already starting to kick in because now we see commercially available 3D printing starting to take off and people starting to realize just how revolutionary this technology can be. So, of course, the monopoly gangster capitalists who have thrived and bloomed and blossomed and spread their cancer across this earth by taking advantage of the fact that uh, ma industrial manufacturing has required intense capital investment in order to get uh, the processes and the, the materials and the equipment and the labor all together to make and manufacture goods. Well, now that that, that entire monopoly and that entire distribution paradigm and all of that is being threatened, well, obviously the gangster monopolist capitalists' very livelihoods are threatened by this type of revolutionary technology that brings manufacturing down to the individual level. If you have the skills, you could literally design and create your own fill in the blank, literally on your desktop, whatever it is that you can envision and that could be made out of the materials that are available. And that is an incredible idea and something that, again, does very much threaten the entire gangster monopoly capitalists global economic system that we have been placed into over the past couple of hundred years at the very least. So uh, there is obviously going to be massive, massive kickback to this idea. And again, just as we can start to see this idea starting to take off with the general public, we can also see the, the kickback starting uh, from the corporate uh, side. So let's take a look at some of those kickbacks. And we can get some idea of this from businessinsider.com, which ran an article just two months ago, October 12th, 2012. A super obscure patent now blocks 3D printing of weapons, food, prosthetics, even human skin. Quote, the future of 3D printing was bright 
until an obscure patent filed in 2007 passed just the other day. Essentially, the patent is anticipatory of future technology, assuming that a 3D printer will one day become a household item, and that materials for that printer will be equally as common. Enigmax of TorrentFreak.com reports that the law blocks reproduction on everything from food and shoes to cars, weapons, even human skin. Enigmax goes into great detail about how affordable internet and peer sharing ruined the movie and music copy industry. He also mentions the 3D weapons race and the University of Texas law student who recently got his 3D printer repossessed, so steps have already been taken to avoid consumer use of 3D printing technology. End quote. Now, if you go into that article, which of course again is linked up in the show notes for today's episode at CorbettReport.com, you'll find that they provide a link to the patent itself and they highlight some of the text in there talking about what is this patent is really about. But as the commenters notice, note in the bottom of the article, and I hope you do, do go and read through the comments, the title of this article is, shall we say, highly misleading to put it uh, politely. This is not really a super obscure patent that now blocks 3D printing of these various materials. It's really more like a digital rights management patent, a patent for an idea of how to use digital rights management ideas to block printing of certain certain designs um, that could be imagined or patented or what what have you. And uh, I'll let you again read through that article in more for more detail on that. <coughs> but suffice it to say, yes, the idea of digital rights management is simply going to be uh, basically stolen from the the digital world of music and movies and brought to the world of 3D printing. And it's the idea that if you are able to put some digital rights management on a design, then you can't just go and print that design on any 3D printer. There would be um, a way that you would either have to pay for the right to print that design or what have you. And, um, well, there's a lot to be said about that, just as there's a lot to be said about the whole intellectual property argument. And uh, for people who are interested, just type intellectual property into the search bar of CorbettReport.com and you'll find some of my previous work on that very contentious topic. But uh, again, it's important to note that, yes, the exact same type of debate that's been going on over digital piracy is now going to be going on over 3D printing piracy when we face a world where it is literally becoming a reality that you can take an object, scan it in, and literally create copies of that object on your desktop in the privacy of your own home. Who can possibly step in between you and that printer to stop that from happening? Well, again, of course, it's things like digital rights management, which will try to control this at a software level. And there are other ways that this could manifest. And let's take a cue from that article, which mentions 3D weapons, to take a look at another fascinating and perhaps even more literally revolutionary ramification of this technology. This is the 3D weapon idea, and we can get more on this from technewsdaily.com, which had this article just a couple of weeks ago, November 28th, 2012. Fully 3D printable guns waiting on firearms license. Quote, working plastic guns made by 3D printers could end up in testing by year's end. But the Wikigun makers must first get government approval of their U.S. federal firearms license before moving ahead with their plans. The WikiWeapon project, created by the organization Defense Distributed, aims to create the first working gun made entirely from 3D printed parts, according to The Guardian. 3D printers can create objects from plastic, metal, or even food by building them up layer by layer, offering the possibility of turning almost any digital design into a real 3D object. Some gun experts seem skeptical that a plastic gun could fire more than one shot, if at all, before failing. But the mere possibility of 3D printed guns raises questions about how U.S. law enforcement would enforce gun regulations in a world where anyone with a 3D printer could easily create any type of gun. Gun enthusiasts have already tested working guns that use 3D printed parts, such as the gun receiver component that holds the critical bolt, trigger, and magazine parts of a gun. Some of them see advantages in 3D printing because they can easily create replacement parts for worn-out or damaged gun components. End quote. 
All right, so it is not necessarily, it hasn't been tested yet, as far as I know, it's supposed to be tested uh, towards the end of this year, but so far there's no completely 3D manufactured gun that's been created and tested and that actually works, but at the very least we can extrapolate from current technology trends to imagine in the not too distant future that it will be possible in some way to create a completely 3D printed weapon, a gun that is completely printable at home on your desktop 3D printer. Of course, we're not there yet, but they are working towards that. And that does absolutely make a mockery of the entire uh, gun control debate that's happening, of course, right now in the United States. Given the events of last week, uh, it's, of course, something that's on the minds of a lot of people. But what on earth could possibly be done to enforce gun regulations if it is literally possible to print a gun out on your desktop? Obviously, that makes it very difficult for anyone to step into that process and stop it from happening. And, uh, of course, that doesn't mean they're not going to try. And, in fact, we already see this battle starting to shape up in Congress, where we can turn to Mashable.com for more on this. 3D printable guns face federal ban. Quote, No fully plastic guns existed when Congress first passed the Undetectable Firearms Act in 1988. But grassroots efforts to create a 3D printable plastic gun have alarmed one congressman enough to call for renewing the law before it expires in December 2013. Representative Steve Israel made his plea for renewing the federal ban on plastic guns just days after members of the WikiWeapon project tested a 3D printed gun part in a live fire test. The WikiWeapon members, organized under the name Defense Distributed, aim to begin testing fully 3D printed guns by year's end. Congress passed a law banning plastic guns for two decades when they were just a movie fantasy, Israel said. With the advent of 3D printers, these guns are suddenly a real possibility. But the law Congress passed is set to expire next year. We should act now to give law enforcement authorities the power to stop the development of these weapons before they are as easy to come by as a Google search, Israel said. End quote. Well, again, it's not too hard to see once again, how this is a very literal uh, instantiation of that idea of a revolutionary technology, where it is, again, soon to be a very likely uh, possibility that you'll be able to literally manufacture guns in your own home uh, through some very simply uh, acquired materials. That is an incredible step forward. And it's not necessary. I mean, there are obviously there are problems that can arise when this type of technology is available to everyone, which is the problem of freedom itself. If everyone has freedom to do something, if information is free, if these technologies are freely available and if they're uh, freely usable by the average ordinary person, then that means they'll be in the hands of the wrong people. Bad people will have access to this technology equally as much as good people will. And those bad people will use those bad technologies for their bad ends. So, of course, what's the answer to this? Well, we must have government come in and put in the laws what people can and cannot manufacture in their own home. That's the only way to deal with this, right? Well, of course, I don't think so. And it is important to note that, once again, it's uh, one thing to make a law about what people can or cannot do in their own home with their own materials. It's another thing to enforce that law. And it is quickly becoming a point where we're reaching a technological tipping point where the ability to actually enforce these regulations that uh, the government increasingly wants to impose on these technologies is going to be harder and harder, if not already out of their grasp. And there are already some quite revolutionary communities that are springing up around these technologies, which we will get into later in the broadcast. But first, it is important to take a look at another objection. We've taken a look at, uh, we've at least looked at the problem, the problem of the, uh, the intellectual property ramifications of this, which of course is a problem for the gangster monopolist capitalists who have thrived for the last couple of hundred years. Uh, basically in a system that they have created to benefit themselves and only themselves. Well, the other flip side of that, of course, is the socialist problem to this type of technological advance. And again, this is not an argument that's anything new. We've seen this before in various forms. It's the problem of the automation of, uh, of manufacturing. As more and more jobs are uh, dependent on, on these corporations, which rely on this monopoly uh, industrial manufacturing system, 
Well, the automation of those jobs threatens the livelihoods of more and more people. And of course, these tend to be the people at the bottom end of the, the socioeconomic scale who desperately need these jobs, these low entry barrier jobs that are relatively high paying and, and which have provided families for generations now with a livelihood are now being threatened, not only just by the, the types of robotic processes that have taken over in car manufacturing and other such things, but now also from this revolutionary 3D printing manufacturing technology, which really does eliminate the need for a lot of uh, skilled labor that would have been needed before. Even things with moving, working parts can be manufactured completely as one piece in a 3D uh, printing process that eliminates the need for all sorts of different uh, manufacturing processes and, of course, the need for people to run those processes. The argument here is that, well, this type of technology cannot be allowed to just be willy-nilly available to everyone because it will take away jobs from people who need them the most. And of course, that will have a devastating economic effect on those people. It seems like a compelling argument at first glance if we don't think about it too deeply, but when was the last time that the Corbett Report has ever been accused of not thinking about something too deeply? So let's start to answer this, in fact, by turning to Stefan Molyneux of Free Domain Radio, who in fact talked about this problem of automation technology and how that uh, affects the economy very recently on his own podcast. So thanks for your patience. The last thing I wanted to mention which is, again, a very common perception, which is that automation throws workers out of, out of work. And um, there's no doubt that that's true. There's no doubt that that's true, but that is far from the complete story. Far from the complete story. So, let's say that there is a magical way to produce iPads entirely through machines and all the iPad factory workers thrown out of a job. Well, automation kind of sucks for them, right? No question. It kind of sucks for them. But let's say this process drops the price of an iPad by a hundred bucks. Well, then people who have 500 bucks to spend on electronics will spend four, like who would have originally spent 500 bucks on the iPad will now spend 400 bucks on the iPad. And a hundred bucks on something else, a wireless headset, um, a webcam, uh, a gaming keyboard and mouse, you know, you name it. They'll, and so that will drive demand for other workers. Now, the workers who've lost their jobs, yeah, they've specialized in that. That's what they understand. That's what they know. That's where their seniority is and so on. And there's no question that that's, I mean, that's negative for them. But if all you look at the jobs that are lost, then you don't understand economics. You don't understand how society and, and people work. Because if the iPad price drops from 500 bucks to 400 bucks, then you have 100 bucks to spend on other stuff. And let's say you don't spend that, but you put it in the bank instead. Well, it's still doing good capitalist work because the bank's going to lend it out, right? So let's say there are a million iPad purchases a month and the price goes down 100 bucks, and everyone takes that $100 million, puts it in the bank. Well, you have $100 million available for capital investments, capital improvements, and hiring people, and so on. But let's say nobody does that, and all they do is go and buy gaming mice and software. Well, Logitech is, is happy, whoever's making and Microsoft is happy, whoever's making these things. And they have massive, like, massive increased demand. They're going to hire workers, and so on. And so the net result of dropping the iPad price $100 is that whereas before $500 represented an iPad, now $500 represents an iPad and a really great webcam. So what is the net effect in society is that basically you have an extra webcam, which didn't exist before because the demand was consumed by by the iPad. So you have an extra webcam. Now people are going to need to make that webcam and so there's going to be more workers who are going to be hired uh, over time. And since all workers are also consumers, then the amount of money that people spend on iPads, you've now basically given each worker, assuming they buy an iPad every two years, a $50 raise every year. So it certainly is true that 
automation costs people their jobs. But it is more true and more relevant, again, not from a sort of, it's difficult for these individuals, which I hugely sympathize with, not from that perspective, but from the perspective of, well, this is how we gain wealth in a society. Not necessarily through automation, although that's a, an important part of it, but this is how we gain wealth in society. So when I was a kid, every boss needed a secretary, and you needed you know, 10 tellers in every bank. And now you need two tellers in every bank, and almost no bosses have secretaries because you've got computers and uh, Outlook and it's easy to set up your own flights and hotels online and all that kind of stuff type your own letters, voice dictate, whatever you do. Now, it's important to understand that, let's say there were, I don't know, 10 million bank tellers and 10 million secretaries who now don't have jobs or whose jobs have been phased out over the past couple of decades. Well, those people don't just sit there and join the unemployment lines. What they do is they go and do, they go and do something else. So maybe the bank tellers uh, have gone and become personal trainers. And maybe the secretaries have uh, gone and become junior salespeople or senior salespeople or whatever. But basically now, you have a significant extra value in society. Because the jobs that were being done before, before are now being automated or being done for much less cost by people using ATMs or executives using Outlook or whatever. So those have all been, right, those jobs have all they've been liberated. They've been liberated from, and now they can go and do other things and thus satisfying more consumer demand and generating more wealth in the, in the economy. All right, this is obviously just a small clip from a much larger podcast, so I will, as always, exhort you to go and follow the link from the show notes to that full podcast so you can get the full argument in its full detail with all of the context. But suffice it to say, I think it's it's apparent to me that the people who are making the argument that this type of technology represents an automation which is going to undermine the economy and put all sorts of people out of work and on the street starving to death probably just aren't quite able to really understand the implications of the revolution that's coming in the manufacturing process. Because while it certainly is true that in the future it's very easy to imagine how we're going to be printing everyday objects that we might need around the house instead of going to a store, which it's in turn is getting it from some distributor, which in turn is getting it from some factory somewhere, which in turn is getting it from the, all the materials that it has shipped in from all around the world in order to do so, and all of the massive inefficiencies and waste in every single step of that process, although that's not going to happen anymore, and as a result, the jobs that are connected with all of those stages of the process are not going to be in the economy anymore. I think it's the height of, of simplicity, naivety, uh, un, uh, a lack of imagination to suggest that because those types of jobs aren't going to exist in a future economy, that somehow jobs aren't going to exist, that people are all going to be starving on the street and everything's going to be hell in a handbasket. This is the same type of argument that may have been used 50 or 100 years ago to try to say, well, we shouldn't have any type of mass manufacturing process because, well, think about all the artisans who used to work on individually handmade objects. Well, all of them, they're, they're going to go out of work and no one's going to have jobs anymore. Well, no, as a matter of fact, it just shifted into a new economy and new manufacturing paradigm in which people tended to concentrate in factories to create mass-produced products. Well, this is another revolution and it's going to involve another transition and people are going to transition out of spending their lives lives, putting their blood, their sweat, and their tears into manufacturing shoes in some factory somewhere so that they can then be shipped off halfway around the world to be sold in some store somewhere to someone who may or may not actually like that particular shoe, and it may or may not actually fit their foot, but it's the best they can find in the store that day. Instead of that type of process dominating and being the, the only way that we can think of to run human society, we're moving towards a society where, well, we could imagine lots of different ways this could play out, but even at the, the most tiniest and most basic instantiation of this idea, we could imagine, for example, going into a shoe store and having a very different experience in the near future. 
To help demonstrate the possible impact of 3D printing, let's consider how people buy shoes. Today, when somebody wants some new footwear, they usually go to a store. Gathered together in this location are a predetermined number of styles and sizes from which they can choose. All of these shoes have previously been manufactured in distant factories in the hope that somebody one day may want to buy them. Now, let's consider what may happen in the future. Rather than travelling to a store, a customer may go online, select a design, colour, material and size, and then print out their shoes on a personal 3D printer in their own home. Creative consumers may even customise their shoe design using an app created by the manufacturer, or may even come up with a new shoe style all by themselves. Of course, many people may not want or be able to afford a personal 3D printer. Nevertheless, they could still create or customise their own shoes on a computer and then use an online printing service to dispatch them to their own home. Alternatively, they may visit a local 3D printing bureau to get their shoes printed out. Or perhaps they may still purchase their shoes from a specialist footwear store, but now one that is able to offer a far wider range of digital designs that are printed out on demand. In time, it may even be possible to return an old pair of shoes so that the material they are made from can be recycled and reprinted into a new design. So once again, I think the argument that the automation of that's implicit in this technology is somehow going to undermine the economy is quite misplaced and depends for its, its very premises on the idea that our society should be and, and has to be, and it's only natural to be organized around this process of industrial manufacturing, where people have to congregate in these massive factories and go there every day in order to earn their lit livelihood. Of course, that is just an historical contingency that's arisen because of the way that human society has formed over the past couple of hundred years, but it doesn't have to be that way. And just because we were born into that system, and that's the system we think under, it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, we can imagine a much, much better future in which people do not waste their productive years of their lives going to some factory, producing, mass producing some soulless product for some massive corporation, and instead find other ways to actually contribute to the greater good of humanity by producing things that they actually care about. And can you imagine how many uh, people who have harbored ideas and designs and plans and wanted to use them, but have never been able to create a, a viable business model in the past, will be able to do so in this new paradigm, which again threatens to completely blow down the doors of the industrial monopolist capitalist gangsters that have run the system and open up the doors of production to the average individual person or small groups of people who can form design houses that can literally create all sorts of wacky and crazy ideas that may ever only be bought by one person ever, but it doesn't matter because you don't have to have all of the processes and all of the machinery and all of the equipment and all the materials set up and distribution models and all of this ready to in order to mass manufacture products. You can literally make a system where you design something that may only ever be bought once and you maybe only ever make it once, but it doesn't matter because the same 3D printer is able to manufacture all sorts of different materials. So we are transitioning into a very different type of economy than what we've ever known before and we are on the cusp of it now which is an extremely exciting thing and as with every other transition this has the potential to be so much bigger than people right now could possibly imagine and I'm sure people will look back at things like this in the near future where I'm trying to explain the benefits of this technology and it will be looked on in the exact same way that we look on the old 1990s uh, clips of people trying to explain what the internet is and why it's catching on with the young folks or the 1980s where people are trying to explain why everyone must should have a personal computer in their home. Again, it, that looks ridiculous to us now in the exact same way that 
explanations like this will look ridiculous to people 10 or 20 years down the road when 3D printing is part of our everyday lives. And another part of that's to gain from all of this is not only that can the average person now become part of that manufacturing process and individually tailor and make goods for themselves or for other people in individual small-scale businesses and totally blow down the doors of that industrial monopolist capitalist system, but also the it should warm the cockles of the hearts of all of those people who have for so long decried the mass consumerist culture, that which relies so much on those heavy industrial processes with all the materials being shipped all around the world and, and then distributed all around the world and this massively inefficient system with waste and pollution and all of this horrible stuff being done at every level. Well, now that manufacturing is being brought literally into the home at the local level where you literally can do it yourself or maybe go to some design outlet that will do it for you, it is a completely different kettle of fish to think about, and uh, and it, it involves the creation of products which in themselves could be con- completely recyclable, so there will be no waste involved in the processing, the manufacturing of them, or in the, uh, the life cycle of the good. When it's done, you can just send it out, it could be recycled, broken down, in fact, printed again into something completely different. And this is the type of thing that we're, we're dealing with. Uh, the manufacturing process itself, again, because it's additive manufacturing, will only use those materials that are in the product. It doesn't have any waste associated with that. And also, on top of that, it only requires the energy that it takes to run the printer and the materials that go into the printer. And the energy that it takes can be remarkably, remarkably small. There's a very interesting talk that was given uh, at the Singularity Summit, of all places, by someone who's working on developing artificial prosthetic legs that actually look and function like real legs, as opposed to the ridiculous metal sticks that a lot of amputees have to live with uh, their whole lives, because there's never been a good process for manufacturing custom-made, completely form-fitted prosthetics before. And these these prosthetics can be made in a matter of hours, completely custom-made to the person uh, and that person's body shape and their weight and everything, and with the added bonus that it literally uses as much energy as it takes to run a dishwasher cycle twice in order to create this product, which, again, at the end, can then be recycled, broken down, and printed again into some other material. This solves so many of the problems that people have identified in the vastly wasteful industrial manufacturing system that's evolved before. And yet somehow I think that still the people who just want to hate humanity and everything believe that it's a cancer on this earth will find another way to continue to hate humanity and believe that we have to start killing people off in order to make sure that uh, people don't uh, breed too much. But that being said, let's move on and talk about the ways that this is forming, truly forming some revolutionary ideas and some revolutionary communities that are threatening to break down all of the ways and associations that have come into place in the past. We talked before about how the obviously the intellectual property monopoly capitalists are going to be getting their uh, their knickers in a twist over this technology and the truly revolutionary types of ideas that it affords. But the real revolutionary part of this technological revolution is still, I think, not properly understood by nearly as many people as it should be. And it goes back to the same type of revolution that I talk about all the time when it comes, for example, to the alternative media. For years, for decades, for centuries even, we've had to rely on mass-produced media that comes from centrally located organizations in some faraway distant place where they have the uh, the print- printing presses and they have the, uh, the, the resources to afford all the, the reporters and editors and bring them all together and create, you know, magazines that are mass-produced for mass consumption or television shows in million-dollar studios, etc., etc. But of course, I'm not in a million-dollar studio. I'm not a millionaire. I have literally access to as much resources as the average working person does. And yet I'm creating this mass media that in some cases is being seen millions of times by people all around the world virtually instantaneously. It is a mind-blowing thing to behold. And of course, this is not just something that's limited to all alternative media in terms of news broadcasting. This is something that's blowing open the doors for independent music, independent movie makers, all sorts of different media adventures, Um, even people who want to publish their own books. I cannot for the life of me imagine why anyone, at the very least publishing a nonfiction book, would even think about going through traditional publishing. When you have print on demand, you can literally create it 
get it sent to a print-on-demand, have people order it uh, directly. You get a bigger share of the, the profits, and you don't have to go through any publishing uh, ventures. It's it's just, it's so mind-blowing that I think, again, most people don't understand it. And we're moving into that with the physical universe, with things that can be manufactured. Once again, we don't have to go through the corporations to beg for, oh, please let us use your intellectual property so that we can make this or that good. Suddenly, things can be manufactured by ourselves. And the real promise of this is the creation of communities that will come together under the idea of open source, free sharing of information, including, of course, the design schematics to build actual physical things. Now, this is not some high pie-in-the-sky, airy-fairy idea. This is something that is already being done. So if you already have access to 3D printing technology or some of the other additive manufacturing technologies that are now becoming available, you can go to somewhere like thingiverse.com, which is a place where people will upload their digital designs for real physical objects. You can download them, print them out, and literally make objects that other people have designed from all across the world. Again, completely for free, completely open. And uh, this is the true type of incredible, incredible revolutionary community that can start to be we can at least start to think of. I mean, this wasn't even thinkable before this technology existed. Um, and if you don't have access to this technology directly, well, at the very least, chances are, in, if not now, at least in the near future, you might have access to it through a whole wide variety of different maker spaces and things that are coming together to try to make this technology more widely available to the public. One tiny example that I'll point people to that I think is, is a great example of how this idea can really spread and start to be popularized before it becomes something that everybody has in their own home. You can go to shareable.net, which had an article last year about the Fayetteville Free Library. It says, Our makerspaces, the future of public libraries. Quote, When was the last time you went to the library looking for a book? How about a 3D printer? The Fayetteville Free Library, a public library in upstate New York, plans to offer its community both options, a traditional book-filled library and a fab lab to learn new technologies and build new projects. In recent years, the FFL's executive director, Susan Considine, has been pu pu pushing for a reinterpretation of libraries' role. Libraries exist to provide access to opportunities for people to come together to learn, discuss, discover, test, create. Transformation happens when people have free access to powerful information and new and advanced technology. The forward-thinking attitude has helped the FFL continue to grow, adding an AV-enabled meeting room, tutoring spaces, and even a coffee shop. In 2003, the FFL moved its expanding facilities into a disused furniture factory. Soon, the east wing of that building will become one of America's first free public-access makerspaces. And it goes on to have a conversation with Lauren Britton Smedley about this idea and what it represents, which is truly, I think, getting back to the spirit of what the public library was really about when that idea was first starting to come together and for widely made available in the late 19th, early 20th centuries when they started to spring up in a lot of communities, funded to a large extent by the robber barons who were trying to basically recoup their names, their family names, from uh, the bad PR that they'd racked up in during their conquests of monopoly capitalism. But, uh, but this is the type of idea. People don't necessarily need access to physical books as much as they did in the past, but they do still need access to these types of technologies, which again are just starting to bridge into the commercial widely available sphere. So this does give people a chance to access that and to start to develop skills, not only in 3D printing, not only in the design of 3D objects, but also a lot of these places, these maker spaces and things that are popping up at public libraries have uh, give people access to media technologies, microphones and other things that people might need to create their own podcasts or video production. So again, this is starting to get people out of that mindset that we have to rely on Hollywood or whatever for our entertainment. And really, for what it's worth, I mean, what's the point of trying to argue with Hollywood over whether or not digital copying of files is theft in the same way that taking an object is? Why not completely and utterly and totally askew that Hollywood mainstream Hollywood programming and the the, uh, the big music labels just completely askew all of that entertainment for real 
homemade, completely independent, freely distributed, freely available media that's made by communities of like-minded people for the free consumption of all. And that is truly, truly revolutionary. Well, before we go today, I just want to share one little thing that will uh, perhaps be a bridge in the door, maybe to get people who have never thought of this before, never heard of this before, never thought of trying it before, to at least get their foot in the door into this world. You can actually start using this type of technology today. How so? You can go to shapeways.com, which is just one example. There are other examples out there of different types of websites that offer people the ability to purchase 3D printer designed objects that other people have designed. And this site, you can either go and you can upload your own design, get it made, and then it will they'll, they'll send it back to you and uh, you can just pay the, whatever the costs for all of that, that process is. Or you can also upload your designs and you can get other people to buy those designs. Or if you don't design at all, you can just buy other people's designs. And there's all sorts of different little gadgets, knickknacks, fashion accessories, uh, furniture items that you can go and you can buy right now that have been designed by other people, uploaded to this website, and they make interesting little gifts or knickknacks for people that uh, that truly do represent something completely different, uh, something that really does, uh, well, I don't like to make predictions, as people know, but 10 or 20 years from now, I think this is going to be the technology that we look back on and see really did transform the economy as we knew it. On that very, very heady note, that's going to be it for us today. And in fact, for the new year, I'm going to be taking the next week or two off for the Christmas and New Year holiday break. So uh, I will be back with the Corbett Report podcast early in the new year. And until that time, I hope All of you have a very safe, very happy holiday. Once again, thank you so much for all your support of CorbettReport.com and all the support you've given me over 2012. And in fact, since the inception of the website back in 2007, I truly couldn't exist without all of you out there. So on that note, thank you all for listening and take care.